All right. Let's begin in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we call upon your name and ask that you would take your word and bring it home to our hearts and to our minds. We ask that you would apply it to really where we are in life. I pray that you would give us um, instruction, not just to the mind, but to our hearts. I pray for these men that you will immeasurably bless them today. I pray that you would use me, fill me with your spirit, lay your hand upon me for good. Father, I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. So we are in Matthew chapter 5, and we are looking at uh, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. And we're in Matthew 5 and verse 6, and the title of this is Hungry Hearts, Thirsty Souls. Hungry Hearts, comma, thirst, Thirsty Souls. And we're going to look at this one verse, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. We, we come now to the fourth beatitude. And the great king of heaven is announcing the kingdom of heaven in the hearts of men. And these first four Beatitudes really define who are citizens in the kingdom of heaven. And these are the marks of those who enter into the kingdom. It also marks their lives once they are in the kingdom. So there's an initial fulfillment and then an ongoing fulfillment. Um, but the king determines who enters his kingdom. Uh, the king defines who may enter through the narrow gate. And these first four Beatitudes really define saving faith. What saving faith is like, and then the continuation of walking by faith with the Lord. Now, this kingdom... The kingdom of heaven, and we saw that at the end of verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, is not like any other kingdom of this world. Now, the kingdoms of this world um, rise to dominance with military power and political ambition and economic and financial greed. But the kingdom of heaven is completely antithetical and it advances when its citizens recognize their poverty of spirit and when they mourn over their poverty and when they humble themselves under the lordship of Christ. That's when the kingdom of God advances. And so we come now to the fourth beatitude and there's so much for us to learn in this beatitude. And so I've just taken this beatitude and I've sliced it into three parts. And I just want to walk consecutively through this fourth beatitude as it unfolds. So the first thing I want you to see is the spiritual blessing. 
And this, this beatitude begins, as all the other beatitudes begin, with this pronouncement of blessing upon the one who enters into the kingdom of heaven. And, and from this we learn that all blessing is inside the kingdom. There is no blessing outside of the kingdom. Uh, there, there will be what we call common grace blessing outside the kingdom. Common grace blessing is non-saving grace. It is uh, non-redemptive grace. Common grace could include a job promotion. It could include um, a new house. It could include physical health. That's what we call common grace. It's common to all people. But this blessing is reserved exclusively for those who are on the inside of the kingdom, okay? The word blessed means graced, to be favored by God. And there are five things I want to tell you about this blessing. First of all, God is the source. Um, God alone is the giver of this blessing. And God pronounces this blessing upon everyone who enters into the kingdom. God, as it were, lays hands on this citizen and imparts blessing. We cannot bless ourselves. And no one in the world can give this spiritual blessing. And no church and no minister can impart this blessing. Only God in heaven can give this blessing. And it comes to us through Christ and it's applied by the Holy Spirit. It's a Trinitarian blessing in that regard. The second thing is the sphere is spiritual. I've already alluded to this, but this blessing does not include health and wealth. It does not include position and prestige. It does not include promotion and possessions. That would be, again, a common grace blessing. This blessing involves forgiveness of sin. It involves the righteousness of Christ. It involves a joy and a gladness of heart that only God can give to those who are inside the kingdom. The third thing I would tell you about this blessing is that it is the the opposite of being cursed. Everyone is either blessed or they're cursed. There's no middle ground and there's not a third category. And everyone outside the kingdom is cursed. Everyone inside the kingdom is blessed. And to be cursed means to be under the wrath of God and for judgment to be impending. And there will be an execution of judgment at the end of the age. And so the opposite of being blessed is being cursed. The fourth thing I would tell you about this, this blessedness is the experience is joy. This brings to the hearts of all who enter into the kingdom true joy and true peace, inner heart contentment, and satisfaction, even as the end of this beatitude 
says. It, it causes the heart to be merry and, and to be happy. And then the fifth thing is the duration is eternal. So, once blessed, always blessed. You may go from being cursed to being blessed, but you will never go from being blessed to being cursed. And so this blessing is irrevocable, and it endures forever. And so that's part of our enjoyment of this blessing. We're not having to fret over losing it or it slipping through our fingers. No, it, there is an eternality uh, about this blessing throughout all of life and throughout eternity to come. So that is this spiritual blessing, and it is the biggest thing that can ever come to your life. There, there is no greater um, blessing, there is no greater good thing that could ever come to your life than for this blessedness to be pronounced upon your, your life. This is the crown jewels of your life. And in reality, it brings you into personal relationship with the king himself. And how unlike the kingdoms of this world that is. For most, most citizens of earthly kingdoms never know uh, the, the Caesar or the emperor or the president or the prime minister. But you and I have been so blessed. Not only are we in the kingdom, but we have been ushered into the palace of the king himself. And we have been brought into his presence where we have a permanent relationship with him, but it's also a personal relationship with him. And we may come before his throne of grace 24 hours a day, seven days a week, the throne room is always open to us, and we may always access him um, any time of the day or night. And so we, we, we have this extraordinary blessing. We have been brought into union with the king. We have been brought into communion with the king. And we have been brought into fellowship with the king. So this is a blessing that is 10,000 times 10,000 times 10,000 greater than any earthly blessing of health or wealth that could ever be bestowed upon us. So each one of these eight Beatitudes begins with this emphatic declaration, blessed, blessed. It's just like driving it home to our hearts. Now, the second thing that I, I want you to note is the spiritual longing. This is what is necessary in order to experience this, this blessedness. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So, this is a necessary condition. This is a necessary prerequisite if you will. And before we actually look at these words, hunger and thirst and righteousness, before we look at this, I want us to see again the building progression 
that is leading up to this fourth beatitude. It's intentionally batting in the cleanup spot in the batting order here. It's batting fourth. And the previous three beatitudes are lined up uh, strategically, purposefully, theologically, and even logically, okay? So I I just want to walk back through this. Uh, In verse 3, we see, blessed are the poor in spirit. We will never hunger and thirst for righteousness until we first recognize that we are poor in spirit. The only people who hunger and thirst for righteousness are those who realize they have no righteousness, who realize that they are poor in spirit. They, they are spiritually bankrupt. They are spiritual paupers outside the kingdom. Uh, they have only the rags of their own self-righteousness on them. And so that's the first step. Is, is that we, we must recognize our own spiritual nothingness and, and emptiness. That's, that's number one, or we'll never hunger and thirst for righteousness, okay? Then second, in verse four, uh, blessed are those who mourn. Uh, this mourning is a spiritual brokenness over my own poverty of spirit. Uh, It's not just mourning over the sin that's in the world and in society, though we do mourn over that. But this is personal, and this deals with mourning over my poverty uh, of spirit. And there is a a deep conviction of sin that that sweeps over my, my soul, and I'm inflicted with an internal pain. It's called conviction of, of sin. And it produces in me a, a, a grief over the guilt that I now feel for my sin. You will never hunger and thirst for righteousness until you mourn over your own sinfulness and mourn over your own nothingness in and of yourself. And then we move to the third beatitude in verse 5. Blessed are the gentle, and these are those who, because they recognize their spiritual poverty and they are broken over this, they now humble themselves beneath the mighty hand of God. And to be gentle, the idea is really to be meek, that, that you... Um, that you take your place in the dust before God and you stop all of your own efforts to, to, to save yourself. You, you abandon all hope of achieving righteousness on your own that would commend you before God. You, you have finally come to the end of yourself. And you are no longer striving to, to, to gain entrance into the kingdom by your own goodness. That, that's the idea of gentleness. And you will never hunger and thirst for righteousness until you have stopped trying to be righteous yourself, to commend yourself to God. 
And so we now come to the fourth beatitude in this sequence, this, this unfolding, it's almost like a domino effect, this sequence from A to B to C to D, we now come to, to spiritual hunger, and it is a desire for what only God can provide for us. So let's look at these words here. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. The word hunger is a Greek word that, that means extreme hunger. That there is a gnawing emptiness on the inside of you. That when you are really hungry and you've gone some time without eating, you become so single-minded that nothing else can distract you. I've got to get something to eat. Uh, I'm dying on the inside. And nothing else matters. And so you you become desperate. and, and And it moves you to get up out of your chair or your seat or wherever you are and take action to, to find food that, that will satisfy your hunger. I mean, you're, you're aching on the inside. And, and sometimes even your stomach is, is growling and it's talking to you. That's what this word hunger it's, it indicates. There, there is a, a longing as we will see for righteousness. It's a longing for something that's on the outside of you that you cannot produce, but that you desperately need in order to find acceptance with God. And nothing else will satisfy except this righteousness. Not, not, not even going to church will, will satisfy this. Not even coming to a Bible study will satisfy this. Not even having Christian fellowship will, will satisfy this. There has to be the righteousness that only God can give before you will find satisfaction. And then he adds the word thirst, hunger and thirst. And again, the word thirst here is a strong desire. It's an overwhelming yearning. It's a, it, it's a craving for what you do not have but desperately need. And it's not just that you intellectually know this. I mean, you feel this need deep, deep with, with, within you. And I think the reason he adds thirst after hunger, hunger and thirst, is just to, to drive this truth home deeper into our hearts that it's not enough just to hunger. I mean, you've got to also thirst. Uh, and he says, for righteousness. Now, what does the word righteousness mean? In simplest terms, the word righteousness means conformity to a standard. It means conformity to a standard. And that standard is the perfect holiness of God. And that is the only thing that will satisfy God. 
And you will never be satisfied until God is first satisfied. And there is only, there is only one thing that will satisfy God with you. And that is for you to have perfect righteousness in your life. Now, the problem is our poverty of spirit. The problem is we, we, we have an account. It's worse than being zero. We, we are in debt. We, we, we have no righteousness of our own. I'm going to give you two verses. Isaiah 64, verse 6. I mean, this is the slam dunk verse. All our righteous deeds are like filthy garments, or like a filthy garment. And I, I, don't, I don't want to be crude here, but when you look up filthy garment in, in the Hebrew, the definition is menstrual rag. That the best that we have to offer God, our own righteousness, that not, not just our sin, our own righteousness, whatever good deeds, whatever good intentions we would have, it is still polluted with sin. It, it is still polluted with selfish motives and selfish ambition. Um, it, it, it's like, I, you guys know I write with a fountain pen, I get ink on my fingers. Everything I touch has ink on it then. I mean, I get ink on my shirt, I get ink on other pages, I, I get ink on my food, I, I get ink on everything once I get ink on me. Well, we have sin on our hands, and everything we touch is now sinful in the eyes of God. All our righteousness, all our righteous deeds are as a filthy rag. It is like a, a bloody minstrel rag from the ancient century. It's repugnant to God that you would try to commend yourself to me, holy God, with your best efforts. It's like minstrel rags to me. We need to be crystal clear about this. And then Philippians 3 and verse 9, Paul says, not having a righteousness of my own. I mean, if anyone could have had any self-generated righteousness to commend himself to God, I mean, it would have been the apostle Paul and in Philippians 3, it's interesting, he, he actually gives his own little spiritual resume. Um, he says in verse 4, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. I mean, if anyone could get in at the head of the line and commend themselves to God by their own works, it would have been Saul of Tarsus. And then the next two verses, I mean, he just checked every box. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, 
of the tribe of Benjamin, I mean, that's the kingly tribe, a Hebrew of Hebrews, you cannot be more Hebrew than being a Hebrew of Hebrews. <laughs> I mean, that means you were brought up in a Hebrew home, you were taught the Hebrew religion, you had Hebrew parents, you, you, you lived a Hebrew life. I mean, it was grounded in the Ten Commandments. Uh, you, you, you had the Word of God poured into you from your earliest remembrance. You, you were a Hebrew of Hebrew. And then he says, as to the law, a Pharisee, you, you cannot be more committed to the law than to be a Pharisee. The word Pharisee means a, uh, a separatist, that you have just cut yourself off from casual religion and people who are just going through certain motions every once in a while come into the temple. No, you're, you're a Pharisee. You, you are so devoted to keeping the law that they actually then created another set of laws. I mean, the laws in uh, Exodus and, and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, they weren't enough. So they made up more laws, hundreds of them. And they were fastidious in their devotion to try to keep every single one of these laws. I mean, out back, they would have a garden and they would grow mints. Like the, the flower mints, not that you put in your mouth at, like you buy at the airport, but mint. And so they would pull a mint and they would, they would pinch off one-tenth of every leaf and bring it to the temple and give one-tenth to God. I mean, they, they go through their garden and, and they're unbelievable in, in their devotion to trying to, to keep the law. And then he says... In verse 6, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. I mean, he, he wasn't just for the Jewish religion. He is in attack mode against everything and everyone who would be in opposition to what he perceived the Old Testament was teaching. He was a, a guardian to the nth degree. I mean, he'd put up a firewall around the law and around Israel and... He sought to persecute the church and to put them to death. And then he says, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Well, that's his own estimation. And he had bypassed his own heart. And, and he will tell us in, in Romans chapter 7, I was doing just fine going through the Ten Commandments. I hadn't killed anybody. Uh, I hadn't committed a physical act of adultery. Um... I still, you know, talk to my parents kindly. But he said, when I came to the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. Because it went to the heart. And he realized that his, his, his heart was bankrupt before God, regardless of the outward appearance. But at this point, he's checked all the boxes. If anybody could have earned righteousness to stand before God, it was Saul of Tarsus until the moment he came in contact with Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road. And so, in fact, as long as I'm here, let me just keep reading in Philippians 3 for a moment, verse 7, but whatever things were gained to me, well, that was in verses 5 and 6, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish. That word rubbish means human excrement. It means dung. Paul said, everything I once cherished, circumcised on the eighth day, Hebrew of Hebrews, once I saw Jesus Christ and once I saw his perfect righteousness, I realized that what I was holding in my hand was not a golden treasure. It, it was just simply rubbish. He says, so that I may gain Christ. Verse 9, and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That is what we call justification by faith, that we are given the righteousness of God. So come, come back to Matthew chapter 5. I, th I think it was good that we looked at those verses. I, I don't like being gone from my main passage for any length of time. So, so, so come back to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6. This fourth beatitude, Bless, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, I, I want to take us to two verses right here in the Sermon in the Mount to see how desperately those who heard this sermon needed this righteousness that only God can give and how desperately you and I need the righteousness that only God can give. So look at verse 20. Matthew 5, verse 20. For I say to you, and that has a very emphatic tone to it, for I say to you that unless your righteousness, meaning all your righteous efforts to commend yourself to God, surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, even the Pharisees and the scribes could not enter the kingdom of heaven with their righteousness, okay? Your righteousness is going to have to far exceed theirs, and theirs is light years ahead of yours, and even theirs would not gain them entrance into the kingdom of heaven. So, how much righteousness will you have to work up in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven, okay, where you tote the bill. All right, turn to the, la the last verse of this chapter. The last verse of this chapter. Verse 48, Matthew 5, and we have the answer. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father. Yeah, <laughs> it's perfect, okay? <laughs> okay. We can agree on poverty of spirit, okay? I mean, how perfect is God? How holy is God? How flawless is God? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth is full of His glory. To repeat it three times elevates holy the holiness of God to the superlative degree, good, better, best. To repeat holy three times means 
God is holy. God is holier than anyone in this room. He is holiest. He is the holiest being in the entire universe. He is perfectly holy. And so the standard that has been set is you must be perfect for the entirety of your life. It's not, well, if I can work my way up in 10 years, I can hit perfection. No, no, no. You've got to be perfect. Every moment of every day, of every month, of every year, of every decade of your life. Just one sin, just one act of unrighteousness will condemn you forever. That's how holy God is. That's how perfect God is. So, none of us can get in by our own righteousness, right? The, the word was used in the first century of a woman who would go into the marketplace to buy some grain. And she would go to a merchant. There'd be like a tent, and he's under the tent, and he's got bags of grain he's brought in from the field, and he's got some scales. And the woman would say, I would like to have X amount of grain. So X amount, he pulls out a weight that is the same as the amount she requests, and she puts it on one side of the scales in this dish right here. And then over here in this empty dish, he begins to pour grain until they're exactly equal, right? That is called righteousness, that it's perfect conformity to the standard, all right? So, as God measures your life and my life, He has on one side of the scales the entirety of your life. And all it is is marred by unrighteousness. On the other side of the scales is not the average conglomerate righteousness of everyone in this room, whatever that medium number is. God puts His own righteousness on the other side of the scales. Boom. Well, we can't measure up. And there's only one way for us to measure up. And that is for someone else's righteousness to be put into this side of the scale. And so Jesus Christ came into this world to fulfill all righteousness. That's Matthew 3, verse 15. To fulfill all righteousness. He met the demands of the law at every point. He never once committed an unrighteous act. He, was, he lived in perfect obedience to the law of God, and he lived in perfect compliance 
to the will of God, including going all the way to the cross and to die as a sacrifice for our sins. And so when we believe in Jesus Christ, God takes His righteousness and places it on this side of the scales where our sin once was. He takes our sins away from, with forgiveness and the perfect righteousness of Christ is placed there, which is equal to the holiness of God. Okay? This is a good deal. And now the scales are in perfect conformity. They're in perfect alignment. And so there's only one way for your side of the scales to meet the standard and to match up with the holiness of God, flawed wretched sinner that you are, and that is for the righteousness of someone else, Jesus Christ, to have lived in your place and to have died in your place, and for His righteousness to be put onto this side of the scales because of your faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what God does, and so now the scales are perfectly in balance, and so now we have acceptance with God. Now we can come into the kingdom. Now God is satisfied as He looks at us. And if He's satisfied, then I'm satisfied. Okay? So, you're still here with me in, in, in Matthew 5. And so, back to verse 6. <laughs> so, I, I, let me... Let me let me just, this is the heart of the gospel, okay? So just bear with me. Let me give you some more cross-references. It's okay. This is a Bible study, okay? <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. I don't have any illustrations or anything. Well, I just gave you a great illustration. Okay, so maybe I do. Um, let me give you some cross-references. All right, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. Christ Jesus became to us righteousness. Okay? It also adds in that verse, wisdom, which is an umbrella term for the, the wisdom of the gospel, uh, redemption and sanctification and righteousness. You got the whole package with Christ, okay? Yeah, you, you got His righteousness to bring the scales into balance, but you also got His redemption to buy you out of the slave market of sin. You got His sanctification to now practically set you apart from the defilements of this world and put you on a new path. You, you got the whole package. But what I want you to see is the word righteousness. Christ Jesus became to us righteousness. We desperately need His righteousness or we're hopeless. 2 Corinthians 5.21 2 Corinthians 5.21, He, God the Father, made Him God the Son. God the Father made God the Son who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That, this is known as the great exchange of the cross. My unrighteousness was laid upon Christ at the cross, and He died bearing my sins. His righteousness is now laid upon me. You talk about 
buy low, sell high. <laughs> I mean, this is the deal of the century, okay? The worst about me transferred to Christ as he hung upon the cross. The best about Christ transferred to me. Uh, it's unbelievable. This is the great exchange of the cross. Um, Romans 1, verse 17, For in it, the it refers to the gospel, or in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. This is how we receive the righteousness that we desperately need, is God supplies it. What we need, God supplies. What we need, we cannot supply. What we need, God supplies. When Martin Luther came to this verse, Romans 1, verse 17, the year was 1519, he is up in the tower of, of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. He is a professor of Bible at the University of Wittenberg. He's lost, he's unconverted, and he is meditating on this very verse, Romans 1, 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. He is studying it in the Greek New Testament that just three years earlier had been compiled and put together by Erasmus. And so now for the first time, Bible scholars can study the Bible in the original language and get down into the weeds of what this is actually saying. And so Luther's up in this tower and he's meditating and he's, he, he likened it to pounding on the door trying to get the meaning out of this and in a moment he sees it. This righteousness is not what I provide. He said, it's a foreign righteousness. It's an alien righteousness. It's a righteousness outside of me. It, it comes from the outside of me. That's why it's foreign or alien. It has to be given to me. And in reality, it comes from another world. It comes out of heaven. And God grants to me this righteousness. He credits my account with it. He clothes me with it. He, he imputes it to me. He, he, he charges it, declares it to be mine. This, this is the heart of the gospel, men. This, this is what it's all about. Romans 4, verse 5, just as David speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. I, I just trust the scales have fallen off of your eyes and the veil is removed and that you can actually see what we just walked through. It's the difference between being lost and being saved. It's the difference between being condemned and being justified. It's the difference between being unrighteous and being declared righteous by God. So finally, at the end of verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And I guess I just need to say this before I get to this state the third heading. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is the final step of really what saving faith is. That you hunger and thirst for 
righteousness. I, I'm just going to head. I'm going to have to give you these cross references right now. John, John, I'm just bleeding Bible right now. Okay, I don't want to hemorrhage. John four verse fourteen. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. Spurgeon has a sermon on this. The title is The Sip That Satisfies. One sip and you'll never thirst again the rest of your life. The waters of this world, you got to go back and you got to go back, you got to go back to try to get satisfaction. I got to get a promotion, I got to get a raise, I got to get a bigger house, I got to build bigger barns, I got to have more. It just never satisfies. You're like a rat on a treadmill. But here, one sip and you're satisfied forever. <laughs> this water is that potent, it's that strong. The Lord is. The water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. John 7, 37, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Revelation 22, 17, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes Take the water of life without cost. Just come with empty hands and drink, and you're satisfied forever. You're not going to want to go back to any other foul, polluted source. Okay, now, the end of verse 6. The third main heading is the spiritual satisfaction. So what's the result? of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. What is the result of eating and swallowing this righteousness? For they shall be satisfied. They means they and they alone. These are the only satisfied people in the world. Everybody else is frustrated out of their earlobes. Everybody else is is empty. Everybody else is searching and looking, but they never find it. Never find it. These, they alone shall be satisfied. Shall be. There's a certainty about it. This not might be satisfied. Not possibly could be satisfied. No. Shall be. This is that this is an irrevocable guarantee from the king who presides over his kingdom, that if you will take one sip, if you will take one bite, if you will take one step and enter into my kingdom, you shall be satisfied forever. The word satisfied means to be made content, to, to, to want nothing else, to never hunger or thirst again. It's in the passive voice, which means I'm not active, I'm passive. Someone else is doing this to me. Someone else is 
or something else is making me satisfied, okay? Well, it's this perfect righteousness that satisfies God, his, meets his standards. It now makes me satisfied, makes me content, puts me at peace. So, did this beatitude... <laughs> is a phenomenal beatitude. And once you receive his righteousness, for the rest of your life now, you practice righteousness, okay? Just look at chapter 6, verse 1, for a second. Chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them, etc., well, there's a bad practicing of righteousness, but there's also a good practicing of righteousness. And you remember, righteousness simply means conformity to a standard. So once you're in the kingdom, we are to continue to hunger and thirst, not for this imputed righteousness. That's a one-time transaction. We're justified by faith just one time. But we are to hunger and thirst, in a sense, for the rest of our life, to be more and more brought into conformity to the likeness of Christ in a practical way, okay? And so that's what happens now in our Christian life. We're just gradually, progressively becoming practically righteous, okay? But at the moment of entrance into the kingdom, we are judicially declared to be righteous and to have a righteous standing before God. That will never change. That will never change. In the kingdom, I now must pursue and practice righteousness. Live according to the standards of Scripture and please God in the way I, I conduct myself until I stand in His immediate presence. So, men, I just need to ask you, and then I'm going to open it up. Do you hunger and do you thirst for righteousness? If you're satisfied in your own righteousness, God's not satisfied, and it will have serious consequences throughout eternity. But if you hunger and thirst for the righteousness that Christ, alone, that Christ alone can secure and give to you, then you will be satisfied. You will be content. You'll be happy. You'll be glad because God is satisfied with you. Okay, let me open it up for questions. I went just a little bit longer, but there's just so much meat on this bone. Um, so are you wanting the microphone? It's right in front of you. I just didn't want to jump in front of somebody else. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, in uh, philosophy, there's this idea of what they call the hedonistic paradox, where when you, <clears throat> when you pursue the Earth's pleasures, the pursuit itself is frustration, and the acquiring of those pleasures, now that the pursuit is gone, leads to boredom. So you're either, your choices in the world tend to be either frustration or boredom. And we see this with the mega wealthy where there's, there's never enough wealth and on and on and on. 
And I was wondering if you could just speak to us not finding that in Christ and how even though we are hungering and thirsting for this righteousness, there's a satisfaction to be found in that, that hunger and thirst. Yeah, I don't know that I'm tracking on the question. Uh, say it again. <laughs> that there, if you could speak to us uh, not finding that paradox in Christ, that, that even though we are hunger, we, we do have a hunger and a thirst um, uh, as we live our whole life, that we are yet satisfied in that hunger and thirst as opposed to the okay. world where there's there's frustration or there's boredom or there's... all right i'm going to give you a phenomenal answer <laughs> okay. okay it may not be the answer to whatever the question was because <laughs> i still don't get the question but i'm going to give you a world-class answer okay <laughs> now that we are in the kingdom we actually can enjoy things in the world because we have our priorities right. And so we now can enjoy working in the yard. We now actually can enjoy going to work because uh, a Christian work ethic is a good thing. It brings satisfaction that I have accomplished something that is of benefit to someone else. And there's satisfaction that I have been able to provide for my own family, to put food on the table and to provide clothes for their back and a roof over their head. Um, because I am right with God, I now can find satisfaction in going to a football game. I can find satisfaction in going hunting. I can find satisfaction in certain things, in, in, in going to a, a, a concert of classical music or something like that, um, because I am satisfied with the righteousness that Christ has provided for me, a contentment. While someone else who's not a Christian, they will be a workaholic in a negative way. And they're like a man in quicksand. The more he moves, the faster he sinks. And he's never able to move ahead. He can only move, in a sense, digging a hole down. So, um, you know, the book of Ecclesiastes, you know, eat, drink, and be merry. Uh, I mean, we can enjoy the pleasures of life. And in 1 Timothy, I think it's chapter 4, uh, he says about verse 3, God has created all things for us to richly enjoy. How about that? So we can enjoy uh, food. We, we can enjoy color. We can enjoy architecture. Uh, we can enjoy certain things in life because we're not living for these things. We're living for God. And so I think of Matthew 6, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these other things will be added unto you. Just get your priorities right, and you will have and enjoy other things. So, yeah.
Okay, it, it's, uh, it was a great answer. <laughs> I don't know that it matches up. Yeah, Kent, you got anything? Yeah, I, <clears throat> just lovingly, I don't enjoy working in the yard. <laughs> so I just want to... Well, Amy that. loves that, I yeah, know. Yeah. And so, uh, just, you've said this over and over again, but just as a point for clarification for all of us, mm -hmm. before Christ, uh -huh. in our sins... To come to him, we must have this, and then after we have come to him and we are born again and saved, mm -hmm. we continue. Can you speak to that continual? Yeah, thirst? yeah, just, sure. Just a difference. Yeah. There's a. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll give a great answer. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know that I got the sort of total question. Um, Colossians 2, verse 6, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So you received him by faith in Christ. Now you walk by faith in Christ as you have received him. So now you walk in him. And so we are under great moral obligation to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Walk is a metaphor for our daily activities and our, our conduct and our words, etc. And so, as we, we've been called by God with a holy calling, uh, we've been called out of the world and out of darkness, and so we now are to walk in a manner that is commensurate with this call of God upon our life. Um, and so, we, we, we must, Hebrews 12, verse 14, pursue holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Um, hey, it's coming back on now, Kent. Yeah, cell phones around the country. Um, so uh, we, we are to always pursue holiness. And the reason that we do is it's not just that we have to, we want to. Because God has given us a new want to. <laughs> He's given us a new heart that now desires to please God, that now takes pleasure in the pursuit of holiness and now becomes pained when we sin. So um, I, don't, I don't know if that's helpful or not, Kent. Or, no, it is. That's the, all right, the, you want to ask a follow-up to the follow-up? Well, I was, I was just saying that there, I'm sure as many people are watching and here that are not saved. And, and you said you've got to have this attitude to come to Christ. But once we are saved and God has fill us with his righteousness mm -hmm. and we've been justified yeah then we still continue with this same mindset and heart and that's yeah. what you're saying yeah in fact i've, I've got a, a there's a million verses when you go through the narrow gate you can only go down the narrow path if you go through the broad gate you can only go down the broad path so you cannot go through the narrow gate and then walk the broad path. It, it, it doesn't work that way. If you're going down the broad path, then you never came through the narrow gate. And 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, which I quoted earlier, remember I, I used the phrase, you get the whole package with Christ? Well, l listen to this. By, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. And this wisdom is the wisdom of the cross. What do you get with the cross? Okay? Three things. Righteousness, that's what we've been talking about, and sanctification. Now, what's sanctification? 
Sanctification is being set apart from the powers of sin and being released from our former slavery to sin. And now we begin this new walk of of living entirely differently now than we previously did. And we now are walking the narrow path in the pursuit of holiness. And, And it's progressive throughout the entirety of our Christian life. And then he says, and redemption. Redemption means that Christ paid the price for the wages of our sin. He paid the ransom, and we have now been set free. But let me just read this again. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. It's not or. It's and. So it's a package deal. You get it all. And so if you are justified, you are also being sanctified. Justification and sanctification are inseparably bound together. Please hear this. No one is ever justified who does not live a sanctified life, okay? And, and so God just performs the total... Um, reformation of a person's life from the inside out. I I mean, it's like you you buy an old house and you just gut it, and you just redo it one floor at a time. When when you get saved, it's it's not just that you got, the the old house got painted on the outside. No, every room of the house has been gutted, and every room of the house is being rebuilt according to divine specifications. And it is a lifelong construction process. But nevertheless, he's at work in every little niche of our, of our lives. At home, at work, at church, school, mind, heart, conscience, motivations, priorities. It's across the board. He, he's into every part of the attic. He's into every closet. He, he's renovating, that's the word, renovating um, our entire life if we have been received this righteousness that we've been talking about and been justified by faith. I mean, this is good stuff. This is phenomenal. It's come from the lips of Jesus Christ. The king has defined and described the citizens in his kingdom. And so we'll be here next week. Uh, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And so we want to dig into this. And each one of these really can stand alone. Each one of these are so potent and so needed in my Christian life and, and in your Christian life. So I I trust that you can be here next Thursday morning at at 7 o'clock, and we're just going to keep digging and plowing and studying. So I'm going to close in a word of prayer. Father, we are overwhelmed that you would look upon us in our former state so unrighteous, so falling short of the standard. 
and rightly under your condemnation. And yet you stepped in and intervened 2,000 years ago by sending your son into this world to fulfill all righteousness and to accomplish righteousness on our behalf and that you would take his righteousness and freely give it to us, unworthy that we are. May even our recounting all of these truths serve as a strong motivation for us in our Christian lives day by day to live according to the standard of Scripture and to try to, as much as we can by your grace, be perfect as you are perfect. We, we can't meet the standard, but we're not going to be passive and sit back. We're going to pursue holiness. So God, do this in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll be across the street this Sunday. I'm preaching on the temptation of Christ. I'll be finishing that up, and I would love to see you this Sunday.